0: Adoptees, adopted friends, friends and families of adoptees. How are you? How are you this week? I hope you're good. I hope you're okay. I hope the week is going well for you. What's new? What's happening? What's happening over here in the world of the Rambler, hosted by your friend Mike McDonald? Uh, not too much, I guess. A lot of a lot of media events happening this week. What's been happening? Well. I guess I'd like to start off by saying congratulations to everybody who ran the New York City Marathon today. uh, To include Oliver Chang, who you haven't heard on the show, but you uh, may have tangentially heard about on the show. Uh, He ran the New York City Marathon today, and I just want to congratulate him on running a great marathon. Good job, buddy. Way to get out there. Way to do something that I will never do. And really, I don't have a desire to do. But... What else did I do this week? Uh, a lot of media, a lot of, a lot of TV shows and movies out there. Uh, I, I finally got around to watching This Is Us. I don't know if you've seen this. Have you seen This Is Us? It's on NBC. It's a little bit saccharine. It's a little bit, uh, you know, it's dramatic, but it's sweet. It's a sweet family drama show, but I will say it is a show that features a transracial adoptee as one of the main characters. And kind of the issues surrounding him and, uh, uh, coming to terms with meeting his birth father and yeah, the the family dynamics of him living with his, uh, white adopted family that he, he was adopted into a black guy adopted into a white family. So pretty, pretty awesome to see that being represented on screen. I, I think overall, I'm a little bit, uh, on the fence about the show. It is a little bit saccharine, it's a little bit uh, too sweet for me, but overall I'm going to give it a chance, I'm going to give it a chance, okay, because I, I like where that, that, that these things are being addressed, despite the fact that it's a little bit dramatic for my personal tastes, so I'm going to keep watching, I'm going to keep watching and we'll see what happens, I don't know, I don't know what else is out there, uh, I ran into April Dinwoody, the CEO of the Donaldson Adoption Institute, which you have, uh, may have heard As a guest on the show previously, you can always go back and listen to episodes of The Rambler in the past on iTunes, on Google Play, on Podbean. They're all hung up there on Podbean and and the rest of the websites or your favorite app to listen to podcasts on. She was a guest and I ran into her randomly on the subway uh, going down while I was on the way down to uh, see Doctor Strange with the AKA, the also known as Teen Ministry program, which I co direct uh, and it was it was good I will say Doctor Strange was good We'll get to that in a minute But uh, I will say It was it was kind of fortuitous It was serendipitous To run into April Dinwoody uh, CEO of Donaldson Adoption Institute On the way down there So Donaldson Adoption Institute I guess in a, in a, a week or two On November 18th Will be hosting a screening Of the movie Lion Starring Dev Patel And Nicole Kidman and I, I will say, if you haven't heard about this movie, go and look at the trailer. Check out the trailer. It is about an Indian adoptee to Australia. And at first, from what April has told me, I haven't seen the movie, obviously. But she told me uh, the, the tone of the movie, the messages of the movie change from the first half to the second half. And that you should watch the whole thing to kind of to get the whole story. I am very much looking forward to this film Uh, and kind of reviewing it. As some of you know, I'm kind of a cinephile. I I love watching films and TV shows, especially if they have to do with the themes and messages surrounding the adoption narrative, because usually those aren't seen and represented on screen, and if they are, it shows one side of the story or another side of the story and not a whole lot of the in-between, or it's like really, really dramatized, and I get kind of upset at the representation surrounding adoption in the media. So I'm looking forward to seeing how this kind of plays out. I have great respect for the cast that's out there, including Dev Patel, Nicole Kidman, uh, and everybody else. And And we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. I'm, I'm, I'm holding my breath. I wait with bated breath to see how this movie turns out. And uh, if you want to learn more about the screening for Lion at the Donaldson Adoption Institute in New York City, then please visit their website. That is located at adoptioninstitute.org. That is adoptioninstitute.org. You can find more information reg- regarding all of that there. Uh, what else? So, Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange, right? Uh, so, I've been, I watched Doctor Strange twice this week because I'm a huge nerd. I'm, uh, as some of you may know, that I'm a Marvel fan. I uh, appreciate all the Marvel movies. I'm a comic book nerd. I like to read comics. I like to watch the comic book movies. Uh, My favorite, of course, is Captain America, but I am open to the rest of the Marvel Universe, as it were. Doctor Strange, if you weren't aware, there's a little bit of controversy surrounding Doctor Strange, the casting of Doctor Strange, the filming of Doctor Strange, and that would be that Doctor Strange, when it came out, and it was created by Stanley and Steve Ditko. Uh, it came out in the midst of kind of the Orientalism, the obsession with the Orient, and kind of the Far East as a mysterious and mystic place full of... I don't know, that's like a Russian accent. But, it, you know, it's very, like, far and mysterious. And, oh, the Asians do this, and the Far do that, and the Chinese, and... Everything surrounding that, and it's a a bit offensive. It's a bit offensive uh, for a lot of reasons, and uh, it's tinged tinged with racism, kind of dripping with that sweet, sweet racism uh, that can cause a lot of heartache in the terms of Asians like myself in the media. And so the way they skirted around this for Doctor Strange, if you're not aware of the story of Doctor Strange, Doctor Strange is a brilliant neurosurgeon in the Marvel Universe, who loses the ability to use his hands effectively, especially for surgery uh, due to a massive car accident. They uh, kind of reconstruct his hands, but there's severe nerve damage and he loses the ability to, con- to do the thing that he's supposed to be good at, which is surgery because of the damage sustained to his hands. So exhausting every last dollar that he has, he finally uh, relents on pursuing Western solutions, Western medicine solutions and goes to the far East And in the comic books, that brings him to uh, Tibet, which is problematic because of the economics in the global sphere. And so they've changed the uh, role of Tibet. uh, I'm sorry, of, yeah, Tibet to Nepal so that they wouldn't offend the uh, Chinese audiences that they're banking so much money on in terms of the Marvel Universe and how much they can pull in from from China. So, basically, there was uh, Doctor Strange goes to... Now, Nepal, uh, that it's been changed to Nepal. And he learns all these ancient mystical arts uh, from this old, old person. And in the uh, back in the day, it was the ancient one. It's still the ancient one. And that person was a mystic Asian with the Fu Manchu who could teach him all of the arts of the Orient. And basically, Doctor Strange learns all of this magic... From uh the Far East and it's tinged with, you know, nineteen fifties racism that we all know and love. Uh scene has that now that was a problem. Marvel relents, and they cast Tilda Swinton as the ancient one, kinda turning it on its head, allegedly, so that <clears throat> so that they could avoid this whole racist issue of having the Ancient One being fraught with the Orientalist mysticism that the character was originally emblazed with. Uh, The issue is, uh, and this kind of happens a lot, is that now you have replaced uh, um, a character that is one of the only Asian characters in the Marvel Universe with a white woman. No offense to Tilda Swinton. I've seen the movie twice now. I've seen uh, Doctor Strange twice so far. I love it. It's a great movie. It's probably one of the best Marvel movies out there. And Tilda Swinton is an incredible actress. She, uh, like, bar none, she's fantastic. And she brings a lot to the role of the Ancient One, uh, playing a Celtic woman who uh, has taken the mantle of the Ancient One as the Sorceress Supreme. Which is great because they were like, oh, well, it's good because she's a woman, she's not a man. So that kind of, I don't know, they thought that diffused the situation uh, regarding the Orientalism with the fact that it was based off of this Tibetan monk. In any case, in any case, uh, Tilda Swinton's incredible. Nobody's, I'm not going to try to take away from that. Tilda Swinton's amazing. She's an amazing actress. She's excellent in the role. Having said that, um I firmly believe that the role there's there's nothing that was presented on screen that I saw from Tilda who again is an amazing actress uh that couldn't have been done by an Asian actor and it's problematic for me that this role wasn't fulfilled by an Asian um because it wasn't overly Orientalist, it wasn't overly racist She brought a lot to the role But there wasn't anything that she brought That couldn't have been represented by an actual Asian person And that I kind of Have an issue with Overall though, great movie Great movie, Benedict Wong uh, Also plays a character named Wong who's a librarian in the uh, Sanctum Sanctorum And in Tibet And it's kind of a small role That I think Marvel just kind of shoehorned him into Uh, to fulfill, or I don't know, to suppress the voices of the quote by C. Robert Cargill, who's one of the co-writers of the movie, who used to be a film reviewer. Uh, anyways, this guy who I have heard and I respect as a film reviewer and kind of a writer said that, you know, this movie was going to piss off some social justice warriors who I, I wouldn't count myself as being, but, uh, yeah, I'm kind of mad of the use of Benedict Wong in this show and Tilda Swinton being cast in this role because I think that Wong should have probably had a better role and also Tilda Swinton maybe shouldn't have been cast as the Ancient One. Could have been a young Asian woman or a young Asian man. I don't know. Could have turned to it on head in a different way and they could have avoided all this trouble. But, you know, it's up to you if whether you want to see this movie or not. I happen to be a fan of the Marvel movies, so I'll continue to watch them. I'm not the kind of person who's going to hold this against them. There's a lot of other bigger racist issues out there in the world to be upset about than a silly Marvel film. And it is ultimately, at the end of the day, it's a silly Marvel film. It's not life-changing. It's not going to you know, kill Asians' opportunities in the world. I just think it's a lost opportunity, and that is the most disappointing thing to me about Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, whether it's Doctor Strange or whether it's The Iron Fist that it's really just a lost opportunity. There's a lot of potential for you to turn your boat around at least a couple degrees and offer some roles, some work to the Asian American community, to the Asian community in Hollywood, Asians in the media. And it it, it was lost. It was squandered on uh, on Tilda Swinton, who again does a fantastic job in the role. But yeah, overall Scott Derrickson, the director, I think, uh, and, the, and the casting agency over there at Marvel had a lost opportunity. Anyways, uh, with that said, there's a lot of other stuff that I'm going to talk about uh, towards the end of this show. But right now, let's get to the show. Uh, I, I haven't even mentioned it yet, but my, my guest this week is Ming Fox Walden. Ming Fox Walden, a Chinese adoptee who talks a lot about identity. Her life now moving from uh, China to the Midwest and kind of adjusting to life in Seattle. And what's that, what that's been like for her. Alright, so, so we'll get right into it now. I'm sorry this is a really long intro, uh, but, you know, this kind of stuff happens. So, uh, here's my interview, my conversation with Ming. Enjoy. Enjoy. Well, Ming, welcome to the show. This is your first time on a, a podcast, correct?
1: Yes, indeed.
0: <laughs> you excited to be here on, on the podcast?
1: For sure, yeah. Yep.
0: Oh, what is that? <laughs> Did you hear that? Uh, uh,
1: yeah, actually, um, I live kind of near a, a main road, so there's always a lot of traffic,
2: uh-huh.
1: um, and it's always like back and forth traffic. So um, the funny thing is we're actually near um, some sort of, like, I guess, the fire station and Um, of course there's the, uh, ambulance that also drives by a lot because, you know, they, they house their trucks there too. So a lot of activity, um, actually my town that I live in, um, it's kind of like certain parts are a little more run down than others. So it's kind of telling of kind of the quality of life that certain people have. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's outside of Seattle. So even though. I just technically tell people I'm from Seattle just to kind of um, get to the point. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just the outskirts of Seattle and um, you know, they have their own malls and stuff like that. But um, like I said, it's, there's certain aspects of the town that are a little, like you just have to be a little more wary <laughs> <laughs> of yourself. And especially with the bus stops, I think that's something that I have come to um, learn about just because I was raised in a very small town where there's only actually one bus and it goes to like two or three places and that's it. Um, and that bus actually only technically helps those who are, uh, physically handicapped. So, um, but I mean, anyone is allowed to go on the bus. It's not like discriminatory. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But the fact that it only goes to like two or three shopping areas and then back to the, like the main you know, center of town,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, versus where the town that I'm in now, uh, there's plenty of bus routes. Um, and so there's a lot of different navigational stuff. And of course, personal and public issues that people run into
0: public yeah. transportation issues.
1: <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And, uh, and then they have different bus companies that take you to different routes. So there's one route it's called the sounder It's kind of the, I guess, I would call it the more elite bus system because the buses look way nicer. They're electric and, you know, all this sort of thing. Wow. And then there's the general metro, which is, they have electric buses too, but they just look maybe a little older, I guess. And, or they have just regular um, fuel buses. And then they have the the link, which is the subway or the train, I guess. I would actually call it a train because the subway is way faster. (laughs)
0: Yeah. <laughs> does it ever uh, go underground?
1: Yeah, it does go underground, but I still consider it a train just because it looks like one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't um ride like a subway in a sense that it's very it's not as fast. And also they're they're hoping to try to make some expansions on it because they want to have less congestion with the cars, but that's a whole nother topic. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, you seem to know quite a bit about the public transportation system in and around <laughs> <Yeah>. Seattle. <laughs> Did you grow up in that area?
1: Well, no, actually, I just moved last year. Oh, yeah? So it's been a pretty, like, uh, what do you call it, intense experience of trying to adjust to um, city life uh-huh. and um, also just trying to figure out, like, what best, way to get around the city and, you know, just keeping my wits about myself, Yeah. <laughs> especially if I'm by myself. Yeah.
0: Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Of yeah. course. Mm-hmm. So where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in a small town in New Hampshire, so New England, um, mm-hmm. and I spent ma- the majority of my life there. But um, my first, I guess, state of residence was Wisconsin. So I experienced the Midwest and the Northeast. I'd say I, the reason why I left the Northeast is one, it's my town's so small that like the majority of people that I know of are either from school or like my mom being involved in my school has a lot of friends outside of, well, not outside of the school, but just a lot of like different projects she's involved in. So a lot of those people know my life through her. And mm-hmm. so, um, out of just kind of, uh, needing a change and wanting to explore the world for myself rather than through my family's eyes I decided I also wanted to get out ASAP and also <laughs> I wanted a different job too I wanted a job where I could progress and that was the main reason why I moved to Seattle because that job was offered Okay so
0: So you yeah. grew up a little bit in Wisconsin and then moved to New Hampshire
1: Yes. Yep. When I was seven.
0: Okay. And you're a Chinese adoptee, right?
1: Exactly. Yep. I was adopted in 1994 in Kunming, which is in Yunnan Province, and that's in Southwest China, right near the border of my, uh, yeah, Myanmar. I keep wanting to say Burma, but it's the original name. I mean, yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I was adopted in 1994, and I think my adoption is unique in the sense that. Uh, My family didn't do, like, a big group of, like, all these other families adopting at the same time. Mm -hmm. They only went technically with one other family who was from, um, I think at the time they were from, I guess they were from Ohio. All along I kept thinking they were from Missouri, but I guess that was incorrect. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I I don't know if they had just moved a lot. So, you know, as a young child I had always been told numerous stories of, their life. And then, um, I guess I didn't actually couldn't get everything together, so to speak, but, um, they were, uh, it was just um, a single, well, I guess it would be a single parent, um, adopting her daughter and, uh, her daughter was a year or two younger than myself. So, um, the way in which, you know, the whole dynamics of the group was, you know, quite different her daughter was constantly crying and just very much upset and stressed and i think she was coming off from being sick Mm. whereas for myself i think i was a bit different in the sense that i was trying to interact with a lot of different people and um but i think in all honesty upon meeting my parents i was very much like oh my gosh what the heck oh
0: hold on a second okay Uh, (laughs) sounds like something crashed into my house (laughs) oh okay yeah, it should just open with the garage door. The, I, the room I'm in is above the garage. I've never been in here when the garage door has been opened. So I was like, what the hell was that? Okay.
1: Understandably so, yeah. Which actually brings me to the other point, which is that, uh, yeah, I'm actually pretty sensitive to sound and um, also smell. And it's interesting because sometimes I'll be in a room with people who I have to just like literally zip it because I'm like, I cannot stand this room. Like, it's <laughs> just worse stimulation of all my senses. And. Uh, people find that people who are in my general circle will find that to be very strange because they're like, "I'm fine." I'm like, "Yeah, but I'm like literally like inside, I'm screaming because I I can't be in such an intense environment." Yeah. Um, and I think it's like it might be a coping mechanism. I'm not sure. I'm not really a pro, so to speak, at like um uh, the human kind of adaptation you know, situation, I guess, but Mm -hmm. I know that from certain feedback I've received from individuals who I've come to know along my um, journey so far, they have, I guess, reignited, like, reasons as to why I have certain phobias and things like that, Mm -hmm. and so given me some sort of peace of mind and understanding a little more about myself. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, As I was saying, like, meeting my uh, adoptive parents, I think I was three and a half, mind you. So I was a toddler and I spoke my own dialect and not Mandarin. Um, And the assumption was that I did speak Mandarin. So that in itself was problematic in communicating with people Hmm. um, because my parents assumed that I knew Mandarin. Therefore, they placed me in situations where people were speaking Mandarin to me and I had no clue. And I mean, yeah, I was speaking baby talk, but um, even if babies are speaking baby talk, they have... The general understanding of lilt in the voice and vocabulary, and so and so forth, Mm -hmm. even if they can't articulate themselves. So that's something that they came up against, and um, they also hadn't uh, been fully told that I had a particular special need. They've been told I had some kind of special needs. They just were never told the specifics. Uh So when they arrived in the orphanage, I think. They had learned eventually that I had some surgeries on my feet, but they didn't know what it was specifically for,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they eventually learned that it was because I had a condition called club foot, or rather for me, it was two of my feet, they were turned in, so that would have affected my walking much less standing, and
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh would have affected my hips and everything else, so... Yeah. I had a lot of surgeries in China and then also in America, and ironically, the surgeries I had in China was done by an american Chinese doctor. Uh, it was sponsored by a volunteer who was from the Netherlands. He also played a pretty prominent role in my life uh, as a young toddler, according to him the one of the starters i guess in his like i would it 's like the uh, cohort i guess of Myself and two other adoptees now, um, they were obviously orphans in the orphanage at the time, but they also had certain surgeries done and the three of us were kind of like the beginning of his journey to, I guess, support a lot of these orphans in the orphanage. From what I understood, it was like a calling for him to do that, um, because he had, um, at the age of around 20 something years old, you know, moved out of his house from the Netherlands. Hmm traveled to China, I guess, had recently converted to Christianity. And that was a big kind of, I guess, um, catalyst, I guess, to his decisions in China and abroad. And having heard that he had literally had to chase my parents down to send them or give them my photos of when I was young, he was, I think, pretty surprised that they even accepted him because the majority of families would just reject him. So he was heartbroken a lot because they were like, Who is this strange white guy, like Dutch man, trying to chase after us? Complete you know, a majority of them are Americans. So why is he chasing after us, trying to tell us that he has photos of our child? You know? And I think according to those times, like in the nineteen early nineteen nineties and even today, like if you had someone who you don't know who's telling you that they have photos of your child, I think the first impression would be like, excuse me what right do you have to have photos of my child? Yeah. Um, what are you doing? You know,
2: like, um, and are I, you?
1: <laughs> exactly. Like we don't know what your motive is. and right. So parents would just reject him. And so um, 20 years later or so I reconnected with him and he had told me, I still have tons and tons of photos of these children because no one wants to claim the photos and I don't feel it's right to delete them or like, you know, burn them or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, because back at that time, they just used like general film, you know? So, so in any case, I think he's a very influential part of my early life there. Um, what really even to this day gets me is that he still doesn't know. And I don't know if he's just keeping it from me or he really doesn't know when I actually arrived to the orphanage. And that's something that's very kind Mm of weighing on me, even as a 25 year old is that like, I don't know when I came to the orphanage. I don't know how I came to the orphanage. I don't even know where I was legitimately found because I, to save myself from heartbreak, I give myself the reason that the majority of any of my information is more or less falsified or uh, fabricated. And Mm. um, I'd hate to admit that, that, you know, I'm technically essentially a lie to the country, right? China. And that I was just an entity that according to the government and according to whoever was in charge of me was just like, let me just, um, make up some numbers and make up some stats. And the reason why I can also like come to that conclusion is that the volunteer, this Dutch man later explained to me that the orphanage divided the children up from essentially one group was healthy babies. The other group was unhealthy. But the unhealthy babies were never specified for their special needs. Hmm. So if a child had some sort of psychological issue, they just called them an unhealthy baby. If they had a physical problem, an unhealthy baby. There was never a specification of it. So, um, and one other thing that I think is important to note is that I found out that. At certain times in the day, I was actually literally displayed for the whole public to see that there was actual unhealthy babies versus healthy babies in the window of the orphanage. So it was almost like, kind of like, um, I don't want to say, I guess it was like, one, it's bizarre. Two, it's very bizarre. Um, technically I think it's unethical. And three, it's a very kind of gross way of presenting a human, um, especially a child who has no right, so to speak, in voicing their opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, And for him to tell me that, now, I understand people's memory can change and ebb and flow, and sometimes you remember things the way it really played out, and sometimes you don't. But given the times and given the way of power at that time, uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, And that's just my critical self-talking, because I think that Um, My relationship to China has always been a mix of, like, admiration and also disgust. Mm. And I know that a lot of my fellow Chinese adoptee friends, some of them have high admiration of China, and Mm. some of them have a very low admiration of it. And I think that they are very much okay, and I find it acceptable to have that opinion, because we a lot of us, well, we're essentially just thrown away, so to speak, by the country's system. And mm-hmm. I, I, even to this day, even trying to get into China as a U.S. citizen, um, that's had its hurdles and um, trials just because the Chinese consulate is very, very strict on who they invite to the country.
2: Right.
1: It's very, and I completely understand why, it's just that I find that it's very alienating in the sense that Um, I would hope they would give adoptees almost top priority in the sense of like, look, you want to visit your home country, feel free to come, you know, we welcome you. We welcome your families. Mm -hmm. We welcome friends. Um, and this is our way of saying that we hope that you are well and all this stuff. But at the same time, I think that, um, it can paint an unrealistic picture of This fantastical point of view of a system that's trying to, um, uh, what do you call it, like, um, not forgive itself, but, like, redeem itself of any kind of wrongdoing. Um, And I don't blame particularly, like, a single person in the Chinese government or systems. I blame the whole system. For being neglectful in producing, one, an influx of people who, um, during Mao Zedong's reign, and I I literally mean reign because he, like, was everywhere in every person's life. And um, he was literally the, like, unfortunately, the oxygen and carbon dioxide altogether, like, he took away from so much of the people, but yet he also gave life to a whole different generation of people Mm -hmm. in saying, like, look, more people, more power. That was all he ultimately wanted. And um, I know that I was born after his time and after his death, but I do believe that his influence, along with Deng Xiaoping, who is the next person in power, that with Deng's and also his advisors and the population, um, committee, so to speak. I'm putting that in a very loose term because I don't know the actual um, definitive label, but the fact that those individuals were involved in calculating who would get what when, right. basically. Yeah. And due to traditional values in also rural areas, specifically even to this day, 20, 2016, 21st century is the fact that like many rural people because of the li- little education that they have, and um, their drive to have this, you know, um, males versus females, boys versus girls uh, mentality is very strong in their traditional happenings, you know. And I think that um, even uh, even in today's news, they still specify and say, like, uh, I think... Um, at least in modern, like in more like, um, affluential areas, you're not really supposed to know the gender of the baby until the actual birth, so to speak. So that mm. there's no likelihood of, um, uh, the couple or the woman aborting the child, if it's not what they were hoping for. Right. Uh, and now I'm just giving you just general hearsay. Of course, I'm not an expert in all this, um, gender ratio, uh, dilemma and controversy, but I've touched the iceberg tip. So, but I think it's a very important part of what makes me as well as other adoptees question our actual existence. Mm. And I think on top of being a a girl, a female, um, having a special needs or a physical disability and then converting to becoming an able-bodied person Um, sets me apart from other individuals, because my uh, physical disability, um, had I not had surgeries, I would have still probably been confined to a wheelchair or some sort of walker. Yeah. Um, And for that, it's given me a lot of interesting thought and, you know, challenges to be able to Um, understand myself for myself rather than understand myself through other people's eyes and Mm -hmm. narratives. And I think that as I've grown older, I've become a little more self-aware and I understand I have privilege in the fact that I have these gifts such as getting surgery, such as having a family that was able to support me in um, the activities that I pursued in my high school years and college years and so forth. Um, But at the same time, I have to be realistic that sometimes I do have my days in which I'm like, I feel a big burden and weight on my shoulders as to the fact that, uh, some of my relationships in my life have been about, well, I did this for you. So now you have to do this for me. So Mm -hmm. this like assumption and expectation and obligation to, uh, contribute in some way to someone else's need or want rather. It's more of the definite or the relationship between need and want.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I think that's really critical that adoptees specifically adoptees come to know for themselves because, um, a lot of our lives I think have been dictated by systems that we never, one had a choice in being a part of mm-hmm. and to a system in which they have professed and proclaimed to the public that there is a need. There is a dire need to have people come and support in whatever way, financial, physically, like meeting orphans who are in uh, institutions or in foster homes and so forth. Um, and I think that that kind of closes the conversation to the real ethics that happen or unethical practices that happen in these, um, areas. And I've become a strong, like, and passionate individual in trying to articulate why it's unethical. Mm -hmm. And one could deem me as a very, as they call angry adoptee, which I had later learned of the term. But when I was in high school and stuff, I was just deemed an angry person and angry adoptee. But like, it was not until I was in college that I later learned that that term was always used a lot with other adoptees and was very much like, it's a negative connotation. It's not a, it's not a means of like creating a new identity, so to speak. Mm. Um, and I think that like, in terms of trying to better understand my adoption story, um, I would just flat out say that like, um, though the truth can hurt, it's so much better to know the truth than to be lied to the whole time. Yeah. And I, as an individual who has dealt with a lot of like circumstances that were out of my control. um, I have such a strong desire to know the truth, whether it be in interpersonal relationships or even down to the fact that like, if I'm not being given the price that I was supposedly told, then I'm going to just fight for it and say, look, you lied to me. Like, I don't care if it's like one cent different, you lied. And people can say, I'm like, retentive and like spastic or something. But I feel like that has been my reason to like be able to say, look, I am worthy of the truth and I shouldn't be lied to by any authority figure, whether you're a store shop keeper or you're the police or something, you know, Mm -hmm. I think that some people in my general interactions would say, well, just live and let live, right, or just relax, or take it easy, or take a chill pill, or, you know, just, just, like, forget it, like, people make mistakes, you know, people aren't perfect, and I kind of look at it as, like, look, I've been raised in an environment where it's all about conforming, it was all about perfectionism, it was all about, like, you either do your best, or you suck, like, you did, if you didn't work hard enough, you clearly didn't try hard enough. And I think that people could say, well, it sounds like you were in a very kind of critical environment. And I could be like, do you think, you know, and I I think that some people fail to recognize that when you were raised in an environment, that's pretty intense, that there's so many underlying expectations, but sometimes it's not always articulated that it's no wonder why I have such a nervous kind of anxiety. kind of personality mm-hmm. and um I think it's become more developed because I was in such an intense environment whereas I'd always just tried to seek and hope for um a p- more peaceful and just solace right in my life because I'd been in such an intense environment even being in an institution um and finding out for example that there was a lot of times I was isolated I was literally physically isolated from the rest of the people from mm. re- the rest of the children there and there's a lot of times where the only reason why I know this stuff is the volunteer mentioned it he said they literally would take me into a room leave me in there for hours with <laughs> no one to help me out and I was a young two three-year-old girl child where? by myself and he said you know um you know there was a lot of times that in order to potty train me and this is might to be disturbing to some people. So just as a fair warning, um, they would tie me to a the potty and I'd be sitting there for hours and one could be like, well, I mean, they didn't know what to do. They had too many children, da 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 and I can be like, No, they committed inhumane acts against me and other children, um, as a means of gaining money. Like literally, we were a commodity in the sense that many of us may not have actually been abandoned uh, because of our parents, you know, financial problems like we could have been trafficked, you know, right. and I I want the world to know this because I grew up with this like facade and story and fairy tale like oh my parents just didn't have enough money and they were broke they 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 were poor farmers and they did this out of love and this is the scenario that a lot of adoptees specifically Chinese adoptees have grown up learning mm-hmm. and I want to be like can we, can we get our thinking caps on people? Like, can we actually really be realistic about this? Like maybe that was a scenario for, I don't know. I want to, I'll be, um, gracious in saying 25% of the population of adoptees from China, right? That's a pretty high stat, but I'm just saying like, not every one store is like that, you know? And I, I want to believe that there's a lot more to my story than, yep, my parents are poor, they couldn't afford my surgeries, and that was it. Yeah. Um, And in terms of, you know, being, yeah, technically abused in the orphanage, and then later on in my life I experienced certain types of abuse that I was, and even to this day I have a hard time, like, wanting to admit that it ever happened because it was so, uh, I would say, disturbing and very, like, life changing and mm. it affected my confidence as a person because it, it made me feel like, well, at the time that these kind of um, scenarios were happening, I questioned my whole like reason to be in that place. And why was I there? And like a lot of self blaming.
2: Yeah, sure.
1: And a lot of people around me were essentially endorsing the fact that I was to blame mm. inadvertently. They weren't directly saying you are at fault, me. Right. They were, right saying like well you're the older sister you should know you should know how to dress or you should know how to talk Mm -hmm. or or why didn't you or no or it was the opposite you're just being dramatic you're a drama queen like that was my new nickname growing up as a teenager which was Mm -hmm. uh everything was drama 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 in Ming's world like nothing could seem to go right in Ming's world because someone or somebody or something was bothering Ming and then it was the opposite. Ming's just overly sensitive and she just picks up on everything. Don't tell Ming this because she's gonna just blab it out to someone else, you know, she can't be trusted. And that's something that I've also come to understand in my adoption journey, which is um, like I mentioned, it's better to know the truth than not to know the truth and be yeah. lied. But for me, it was also about how can I be trusted? Like, what did I ever do in my young life to ever be deemed not trustworthy? And I think it's come down to identity in a sense that um, I don't want to admit this, but I think that as you learn more about yourself, you start to inadvertently pick up on what other people have learned for themselves and think, does that apply to me or does it not? Sure. Yeah. As an individual, I think you start to say, well, I can either let that bother me or I can just push it away or I can learn from it or I can apply it to other activities or other interactions with other people to Mm. say, look, that's not actually who I am. And I'm not denying my identity as in the case for me, a Chinese American or Asian American um, woman. Right. And, but at the same time, there's always going to be naysayers and people who will say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard this, heard that. Okay. Good to know, you know, like just brush it off. Yeah. And I think that um, in terms of the truth, A lot of times I will say that I thought I was being given the truth when I was, you know, being um, assimilated into the American culture and world. And um, my adoptive family being that my parents were older when they adopted me. And um, one other unique part is that I was adopted out of birth order. And so that, I think, contributed a lot to my confusion and ultimate, like, hmm in my own self-isolation from the family mm. because I can attest to the fact that I always interacted with people and was always like trying to connect and be accepting or acceptable and be accepted. Right. To people. Sure. But I think that like my being adopted out of birth order really did do a pretty major number on my like self confidence and uh, understanding of where I stood in the family because mm-hmm. the discrepancy between my birth or, or my birthday uh, to my uh, um, brother who's actually also adopted but from a different country mm-hmm. uh, is only six months so that that's not itself, that big
0: yeah that's not a big difference
1: it's not a big difference, and I think that if it had been a bigger difference, it probably would have been a better um, outcome rather than a being a closer different uh closer in age kind of scenario right, because yeah. it, um my in the beginning uh whenever my parents you know obviously introduced me to their friends and their neighbors and everyone mm-hmm. everyone thought that actually my brother and I were twins which is kind of awkward because we're both born from different continents both completely different uh like cultures and everything and the only similarity is, yeah, we both had black hair, uh, and it was short and, but I had a different complexion than he did, but nonetheless, people just assumed, oh, we should have been twin or we would have been twin. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and then I also have an older sister who's five years older. So it, there's a big leap and jump for maturity and interaction. And, you know, my sister was very excited. She'd get to have a younger sister to play with. And, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, do dress up and all the other kind of like, I guess, girly things that people do. But the fact is, I think I wasn't under a lot of pressure from her because it was like, um, I think she hoped that I would be something that I'm actually not. And like what? uh, I think she was hoping that I would technically be like, because she has a very strong opinion and she's very driven. Uh And I was more of like, a follower but she was hoping i think i would be always committed to being following like her and her oh. footsteps and being very um conforming to her ideals uh-huh. which i think negated the re- uh negated my own like reality that like i need to also challenge myself as an individual
2: mm-hmm. and i
1: think that as time has gone on she's i think eventually come to understand that like i am my own person i am my own entity yeah my own decisions, stuff like that. Um, our relationship nowadays is, I think, mm, I would say I stay. I would say it's still kind of superficial in the sense that, like, I treat her with respect as much as I can, and I treat her well. But I'm not like she's the best um, person in my life, and I could feel like I could confide in her with a lot of things and stuff like that. Like, I can say that I have confided in stuff with her, but, um, I don't think she was the, uh, stereotypical, like big sister.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: like I, what's up?
0: Is she also adopted or is she biological to your parents?
1: Oh yeah. She's biological to my parents, our parents. And, um, she was actually born in Wisconsin. So, um, and I, she has a whole different, you know, life story that I observed, just, you know, watching her grow up. And mm-hmm. I think that, like, because my parents were both raised in, like, the 1940s and 50s, their ideas and stuff was very much based on we want to do better than what our parents did. and yeah.
2: yeah.
1: Which is, makes sense. But at the same time, I think my parents not, like, they hiked up the expectations, like, on high speed, which was, um, for example... My father was raised in a um pretty large family mm-hmm. uh, and but in terms of like his father's income and things like that like it was a very simple life kind of scenario lots of uh, multiple jobs type of scenario um not for his father but for his brothers and him mm-hmm. and then they have a younger sister who um my father was closest to because he always took care of her, um, when the parents' health was failing and stuff like that. And ultimately, um, the parents passed away. But, uh, then on the other hand, my mom's family was more on like kind of, I guess the prestigious in a sense that like her mom was, I think, if I remember correctly, the first, uh, woman to have like gotten her chemistry degree from this university in New York. I don't know, something kind of like that kind of, you know, uh, unique specialty, right? So, and then my mom's father was, I guess, supposedly very, um, uh, I guess OCD, but also pretty like had to have everything a particular way, like all the time, pretty intense kind mm-hmm. of person. I never met him, but, um, ultimately it was like my parents' way of raising myself and my siblings was very, um, I mean, at times it was like almost too relaxed to the point where like I didn't know what was going on. But then other times it was so intensely like particular that I was kinda like thrown around a little bit in my head and also realistic like like in reality I was feeling like I was thrown around a lot. Like, Ming, don't worry about grades. Like we don't care if you fail, so to speak, but like try to do your best. And also at the same time, I remember the day that I got my first D ma uh, was it a D plus or D minus. Mm. Oh my gosh. That was such a sad day because like, <laughs> uh, my father knew I did badly, yeah. but he was also trying to trick me into saying like, come on, like you have to just out yourself and tell me that you got a D plus or whatever. And this was in a college course. And of course it was a course that I really desired to do well in, but I was just, not, um, I, 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 just, I don't know what was going on. I just, I think I was having an internal, um, conflict because my teacher was, I think she's Chinese American
2: mm-hmm. and she was
1: teaching Chinese or excuse me, Western and Eastern philosophies. Uh-huh. So it was a philosophy course and I spent numerous hours with her trying to understand the course, trying to Uh, better myself in her tests, which were all written. There was no, like, multiple choice, nothing like that. It was all about regurgitation of information. Uh And I think that this course was intense for me only because I literally went to class every day or every time it was held. I I tried to answer questions. I tried to participate. I tried to go to her office hours, all this stuff. And I still just didn't make the mark. And... The moral of the story is I really felt like I tried so hard in her course, and I just didn't make the mark and Meanwhile, I had a friend of mine who sat next to me. We always you know chit- chatted a little bit before class, and then we'd get into class mode but meanwhile, my friend was like playing games on her computer, like she'd miss class she still she somehow came on top of the class with a beat, you know, and I was like, what the heck is my brain that um defective, you know, and I think that the teacher um, inadvertently had a bias for people who were I would say, authentically Asian, which is, my friend is second-generational Chinese-American whereas I'm technically not second- generational immigrant. Like, I even spoke with one of my sociology teachers and was like, what would an adoptee be considered in sociological terms? Mm -hmm. And she was just like, Uh, yeah, I'm not really quite sure. And my you, she's got like a PhD and all that stuff. But anyways, so (laughs) I think that like, um, that, that, I guess, will lead me into this other topic, I guess, of authenticity and identity, which is how do I identify myself versus how do people identify me? And I feel like, uh, over time, I've always said I'm Chinese, and I'm from the southwest part of China. And nowadays I just want to be like, I'm just a person and I happen to be from China. Because um, I want people to know that, like, despite any country, like, negative, you know, propaganda and um, stereotypes, all that sort of thing, I want people to know that, like, I'm worth talking to, like, I'm an interesting person, I'm a nice person, Uh, yeah, I've made my fair share of mistakes, I've hurt people, I've done this, I've done that. But uh, uh, I think I'm a decent person and I try to do good Uh, and I try to be altruistic, but sometimes I've made plenty of mistakes in altruism that I uh, am still trying to work through and trying to understand that whether it was a good decision or not. So, um, But yeah, I mean, ultimately I want to be proud that I'm from China, but sometimes I have moments in which I'm like, I cannot believe I'm from China. Like, I am so ashamed to be <laughs> from China, you know, because of the numerous historical atrocities and also just the just the nuances of being Chinese. Sure. And I, I just feel like sometimes over-explaining yourself is such a drain to the person. And I think that sometimes I just want people to be like, you know what, I see you as a person, you're... You're living, you're breathing, and you're smiling, and that's cool, whatever. Um, but I know that people want to be able to feel they have an understanding of you before they actually get to know you because they don't want to offend, and I get it. But at the same time, I think that causes more offense by, like, just assuming at all. When, yeah. Um, it's, uh, I mean, I, I would say I've been guilty of that, too, and I will fully admit that I've made my own fair assumptions of other people. I've been corrected very much so, and I've also been corrected for myself and that I've learned for myself, okay, maybe you just don't say that to that person or don't even think it, or if you think it, just think it on yourself and don't articulate it. <laughs> but uh, I think that's just part of the human experience. But at the same time, I think as specifically for um, being raised in a predominantly white community, and then now I'm out here in Seattle, which is not so predominantly white, has allowed me to become a little more, I've gotten more tough, I think, in that, like, being in a predominantly white environment has made me have to be like, you know what, I'll give you the cold shoulder, and you can just zip it, you know? (laughs) Um, At the same time, I've also struggled with this whole, like, I just need to be a nice person and more trusting and da-da-da-da-da. But now that I've come to Seattle, I've become a little more stone-faced in the sense that, like, If I see people on the street, I'm more, I look kind of sullen and I don't like it because it's not really my personality, but it's my only way of protecting myself. And it's my only way of ensuring no one bothers me. I always have to think two steps ahead. And I think that's another thing that I think is critical in this kind of discussion, I guess, is like, that's been a theme in my life. Ming, You always got to think two steps ahead because you never know what kind of ulterior motives people have for you or your family or anyone else. Mm -hmm. Now, the the irony of the two steps ahead thought process is, oh my gosh, Ming, you are the like speed of lightning thinking. Like you think way too fast. Like I got to catch up. Like I'm literally losing my breath trying to like conceptualize what you just said. So I'm literally on like high speed thought. Yeah, I'm also being told you need to think two steps ahead or the other opposite um, concept is, are you ever going to learn to breathe and like slow down and like take life as it goes and da-da-da-da-da, go with the the flow and like, you know, you could use some pot. And I'm like,
0: (laughs) It's legal there. (laughs) You're in Washington. (laughs) You can get it. uh, (laughs) Yeah.
1: But I've always been like, uh, no thanks. And I don't actually care for the smell of it. I've been around people who do it. And uh-huh. I think I grew up with a pretty narrow minded concept of like, and it might have been just because I was around people who literally did nothing and just smoked pot all day. And it gave me like a disgusting feeling of like, do you guys have any dreams or anything that you want to do in your life? Or are you going to just sit and eat pizza and smoke your pot? Uh-huh. Uh or, Yeah. You know. And I, I know it was a very stere- again stereotypical point of view, but I literally had friends who did that. Or I think that like in terms of the idea of control that that plays a part because I've always wanted to be as much as I can, a hundred percent control in my of my life. And yeah, yeah. like I've always been a big fan of like, well, I would hope most people are, but um, people have their reasons. But uh, not not getting into any kind of scenarios with authority or arguments or whatever. And I've actually been more afraid of authority because I'm kind of like, wow, you have power over me and I can not have anything or no power to say anything, you know? So I would much rather just be like, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. And that's it (laughs) and get out quick. As I was mentioning this idea of being two steps ahead. And yeah, I also sometimes feel I'm two steps or three steps behind. Is like always this constant Thought in my mind, and I feel like, along with being authentic or trying to be as authentic as I can, I think that, as some of my close friends have said, Ming, I feel like you get you you like catch yourself, like you literally like sabotage yourself to the point where you can't ever move forward in certain things because you are so stuck in like. Well, in the case of being in in the past, I'm stuck in the past, and um, also being that I'm stuck with, like, these nonsensical thoughts that just keep rolling through my mind and, like, the chattering monkey business and stuff and um, lots of insomnia and stuff like that. And I feel like uh, when I was actually a young, like, elementary school student, I probably had the best sleep in the world. But then as I grew older and got more anxiety and stuff for the future high school, Mm -hmm. my my sleep just declined and, like, I feel like... (coughs) I'm more of like a high-functioning insomniac because I, I don't know I don't know how like some of my friends think I have so much energy, which it's probably because I talk like with life, but at the same time in my own self I'm like uh, draining, you know. And um, in any case, so I feel like I've always been I'm always feeling like I'm in competition not only with myself but I'm in competition with other people, and people could be like, oh whatever, people are going to do what they want to do, and the only person that's most important in the story of your story is you and that you have to learn how to do self-care and take care of yourself and not neglect your life, you know, duties and, you know, bills and whatever. But like, try, try your best to take care of yourself. And I think the part of me that struggles with that is the fact that like a lot of my life things have been taken care of and some of them were not in my own control and some of them were. And so I feel like, I struggle with, like, how do I take care of myself without in myself? I, I get kind of um, sarcastic but phony. I don't want to be phony in the way that I do it. And I don't mm-hmm. want people to perceive me as phony being like, yeah, I, I do self-care. Like, I'm the spokesperson for sp- self-care. And
0: well, I don't know if you have, you have to announce to- it to everybody that you're doing self-care. You could just do it <laughs> and then, you know, be at peace with that. <laughs>
1: For sure. But I think that, like, sometimes, um, at least with certain individuals I've interacted with, it just seems almost like they're trying to, like, they expect it to come out of me in order for me to just, like, in some way come out with it and say, like, yeah, I, I take care of myself or something. Or that they, they in influence the conversation in saying, are you even taking care of yourself? Or how are you doing? And sometimes even to this day I find the how are you doing or what's up conversation to be just dead in the sense that like if you just say I'm doing fine then they'll be like are you sure you're doing fine or if you say hey I'm great they'll be like oh you're really chipper today what's uh, what's great on in your life and like it's almost like turned around like being happy is a negative and I think that um, that's a common place for a lot of people and especially when it comes to cross-cultural stuff it's like Uh, Sometimes it's just Better not to show that you feel A certain way even if you want to say I feel so happy that I got the job Or something I think I have a self Like obsession of trying To ensure that I stay within the lines Of this is kind of sad But uh, acceptability Because I would like to not be Tolerated by people I'd rather Be like either I guess I'm too black and white in it but I would Either like to be liked or if you don't like me don't Waste my time don't waste your time Um, and I know that like life isn't like simple like that, but ideally that's what my hope is. Mm. And of course, I don't know. I feel like I've gone through certain relationship kind of scenarios in which it's taught me that I still have a lot to learn. I still have a lot to grow from, but at the same time, there are certain parts of me that are like so stubborn and that I, I'm like, why am I being told to be a certain way when I can I'm just struggling to be a certain way at all, you know, and, yeah. um, yeah, I don't well,
0: know. It sounds like you're, well, first of all, you're still young. You're what? 25 you said. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I wouldn't worry a whole lot about it too much. Uh, it sounds a little bit like you, you're struggling, you know, I'm not a psychologist or anything, so just take my word with a grain of salt <laughs> between, sure. you know, being a people pleaser, but also trying to be yourself. and. Yeah, I- Sure. You know that's a fine line to walk at all times. I, 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 some people would probably say the same thing about me. I personally, I feel like I'm very comfortable with who I am, but I know that I, I do try to people please as well, yeah. and that's something I struggle with. I even have a hard time if I sign up for something, even if it's like a trial membership. Like, I oh, yep. hate calling people to be like, I need to cancel this. And they're like, oh, can't, what, the service wasn't good enough, or can't we help? And I'm like, no, it was fine. I just, I don't want it anymore. And then, and then I'll be on the phone for like an hour trying to like be nice when it's like, this person really doesn't care if I like it or not. <laughs> they're just doing their job, but I'm trying to be very polite. Exactly. It's something that oh is a constant struggle. Uh, You know, I, eventually. Uh, so what I would recommend if you're not going to smoke pot <laughs> is, is uh, what's helped me personally is actually just doing some, like, mindfulness training or, like, just self-meditation. Just take, like, five minutes a day and collect your thoughts and think about things, like, you know, not in a fast way. Try to do it in a very slow, deliberate way. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Because I I'm the same way. I always have a million things running through my head. I mean the sh- the title of the show, the full title of the show, and all the handles are like the Rambler ADHD because I'm always kind of all over the place. Um, yeah, yeah. And I don't know if that's a first of all that's not a formal diagnosis I should say, which I, I fooled uh, Katie Holtz who apparently does have ADHD. <laughs> Uh, and she was like oh i thought maybe you had it too and we could talk about that i'm like oh sorry yeah i don't i don't have it formally i mean i might have it i don't know um right i've I've never been diagnosed and i've never gotten any medication for it maybe i should have gotten medication for it But i always have my thoughts going at a million miles an hour and i do so i got an apple watch right Cool. One of their things, I I don't say that to be like, I have an Apple watch, but one of their new things is like, they have this breathe app and they'll remind you every now and then to like, take a minute to like breathe and like, think for yourself. (laughs) And I'm just like, oh my God, I love this. Even though I don't use it that often, the reminder comes up and I'm like, oh yeah, I need to like, just (laughs) relax for a minute. And it's like, I I feel like it helps a little bit. Just calm. I don't feel like I'm an anxious person. There's a lot of anxiety, but I always yeah. have, like, the restless leg going on. I'm always, like, fidgeting or bouncing around. Yep. Yep. Um, so, I'm, and again, I don't know if it's tied back to, like, an adoption thing or where yeah. that comes from, where that yeah, kind of yeah. restlessness comes from. But I do yeah. find it helpful to to try to sit still for a minute and just think yeah. if you're just, yeah. like, hanging out of the bus. Yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly. And I feel like, um, speaking of fidget you know, fidgeting and just like, um, restless leg and stuff like that. I, I know for myself, I think I've come to learn that it's just my way of regulating myself. And like Mm -hmm. that in itself has problems in that because like, it's proved to be problematic in certain relationships I've been in, which is like, I literally had, well, I mean, I know my parents are trying to guide me through life and try to like, you know, instill good morals and values and all that sort of thing. That (laughs) is their job. Yeah, exactly. And I say that with a little bit of sarcasm. But at the same time, I just think that, like, um, because I felt like a lot of my life uh, growing up, I was always monitored. And it just, like, I think that, like, like heightened my anxiety to the point where I I felt like I didn't know what to do with myself. Like, I didn't Mm. know what to do with my body. And I felt like that in itself was just such a, a an apparent problem that, like, it became more of a problem because it was always noted that it was a problem, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was just, like, a cyclical, like, argument of, Ming, like, if, can you just, like, sit still for a second? yeah, or, yeah what is with this, like, w- what are you doing with your hands? Or wh- why are you touching your face? Or, w- like, it was just this, always, like, it felt like to me it's just such criticism and such criticalness of, mm-hmm. like, every scenario that I, I, I like, couldn't relax. And, like, I think that there was just such a, a, a you know, a, a relationship of power in that, like, look, I can tell you that you're doing something that bothers me, but I'm not going to tell you to just, like, be you, you know, but at the same time, in the later conversation, be like, oh, you're so wonderful, and, like, I like that you have such a uniqueness to you, and, you know, um, but then at the same time, I think the thing that really had affected my own perception of myself, I think, was um, the way in which I articulate myself, and the fact that, like, my parents were both very um, influential in saying and uh, it's hard to say it because I think that they meant well but the way that they said it wasn't very nice which is, my father once told me uh, even growing up in high school was he once told me, he said you know, I think if uh, I learned this for myself, but if you talk less people would actually like you and I think that that was a very, very
0: <laughs> that's <daunting>
1: pretty rough <laughs> reality check for me in that Uh, One day, I actually went to school, or this one time I was at lunch, actually, with my friends, and I told myself, okay, I'm going to try the exercise. And it was only a means of saying to myself, can I prove my father wrong? Will my friends accept me if I'm not talking so much? Uh And enough, during the whole lunch period, which was only, what, half an hour or whatnot, one of my close friends was like, you know, she's chatting away, and she's actually pretty... uh, She's more of a quieter individual, so when she was talking, it was like, you know, I obviously heard what she was talking about, blah, 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 and my other friend was bouncing her ideas off of her, so the three of us are kind of just interacting, and I just nodded my head the whole time, Uh, and then, sure enough, they were like, "Uh, Ming, do you have anything else to say, or what's going on, or how are you doing, or how's that project coming along, and I was like, oh, yeah, I guess it's fine, and they're like, that doesn't sound like Ming, like, that was (laughs) like, who would thing and then I admitted to them and I was like yeah I just feel like I'm like struggling because I was told by my parents that if I talk less people would like me and they're like that seems kind of simplistic and pretty harsh and um I was like well do you guys see anything different about me as in like do you think I'm better off talking less or you know what do you want from me and they're kind of like uh we liked your old self better because your old self was more exciting and interesting and like interactive uh this new self seems a little more disturbed and sad and not that we don't want you to be sad if you're sad you're sad but we just want you to be okay and so i kind of like took away from that conversation thinking okay haters gonna hate people are gonna see stuff and people are gonna do what they want to do but ultimately it comes down to what i decide to do and i i just hope that you know at some point i can find some kind of peace inside for myself no matter what anyone says, good or bad or ugly. But I think that I I just feel like um, having moved a year ago from my family's home and uh, essentially being kicked out three years before that and stuff, uh, that shaped the way that I looked at my family and ultimately made me think, mm. holy crap, having reading a lot of articles. I was raised in a pretty toxic environment, and that's what I want the world to know, that like um, – My family is not picturesque whatsoever. And the fact that like, yeah, my father was an oral surgeon, got his medical degree, got his dental degree, all this sort of thing, flashy dashy. And, you know, I'm happy that he was able to overcome whatever obstacles he overcame. But at the same time, I was raised in a pretty toxic environment of just like um, unrealistic expectations to the point of the expectations breaking me down internally. But like I was able to make myself out to be a highly functioning human being and that like people just think that ultimately my family name is humanitarian hippie kind of thing. Like, like my, I was raised first off in a Christian environment or home, but then my parents decided they didn't want to become Christian or stay Christian anymore. And, um, so they just kind of went off into their own spiritual ism stuff and of course i was like i'm out of there i'm out of here um i don't want to be part of any kind of organized faith and the f- I- irony of it is that i've been involved in certain organizations that are in a sense organized in that fashion because mm-hmm. there's a sense of belonging in that way but then at the same time i'm kind of like okay the minute someone says something that seems off i'm out like i'm literally i'll just be in the physical presence of these people maybe But I'm out in terms of how I articulate myself. And so I'm still trying to work with that in terms of like, how can I trust an organization's motives to help people or to Mm. do something for people when there's so many hidden um, messages and sometimes scandals and things like that and double life kind of situations?
0: I mean, duality of people is always something to uh, look out for. And something <laughs> to contend with, because the, uh, ultimately, you know, people are inherently flawed, right? So no matter what you think of them, there's always some, they're, like, they're going to make mistakes, right? Or yes. maybe there's a dark side or something like that. And really, time will tell, like, what people think of those individuals. So, I mean, that's uh, that's the measure of everybody, I guess, is like, what have you really contributed? And uh, how how does that weigh against who you are as a character and a person? You know, and that goes for everything. Anyways, is there anything else that you want to uh, talk about or where can people find you online if they if you're open to that? You're sure. part of uh, Children's Children International, right?
1: Yes. I'm actually part of some of the leadership there. Um, okay. I work with the Facebook groups that we bo- we have. We have two. One is the main group and the other is for um, adoptees only. Yep. And um, I was also part of their mentorship program, which uh, I traveled abroad to China with families who adopted children from China, uh, and uh, along with their siblings, of course, and so I was able to kind of um, be a second year or shoulder, I guess, or what have you, to the families as well as their kids, and um, that was through China's Children International as a contest, so it was really... Nice to have had that opportunity post grad. Um, and the way that people can find me if they would like to find me and legitimately be my friend rather than being creepy. <laughs> well, I'm on like Facebook and I do have an Instagram, but I don't really use Instagram too much. So Facebook would probably be the best way. Okay. Uh, it actually might be better if people, if they ever want to friend me or something, if they write me a message, I'll more than likely respond rather than just send me a message or send me a friend request. Hey, so
0: send a message via Facebook is
1: like <laughs> <laughs> the safest because, like nowadays, I'm just I'm a little bit more like what's the word wary of people yeah, um, yeah. as I should because there's some gosh awful weirdos out there, um, and not weirdos as in like unique, but weirdos as in like dangerous. Um, right? Yeah, and. So in any case, yeah, people can find me on Facebook if they would like. You know, I think that ultimately I'm still on this like quest to try to better understand myself and try not to uh, be too influenced by what other people do or say around me. Mm -hmm. But I think that ultimately um, I just want to like like have fun, do awesome things, travel, blah, 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 like actually like make something of myself. I I know in terms of like job wise I would hope to ha- have my own company one day because I think I'd be far better managing my own company rather than being managed. There's a little bit of sarcasm I guess in that, but I feel like I I do respect leadership, but I do question leadership because I always try to keep a very uh, keep my eyes and ears open because I never want to feel like I missed out or missed something. Um, and I think that it's actually, I'd rather be aware, aware than complacent, I guess. And, uh, I think that's the ultimate message I'd send to other people. If they ever like, uh, wondering what they should do next, I guess (laughs) in life.
0: All right. Well, with that, I want to thank you for taking the time and coming on the show and, uh, the best of luck in your endeavors, starting your own business or whatever. (laughs) Well,
1: thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, I'll, um, Keep you posted. And again, thank you again for having me and have a great day.
0: Thanks. You too. All right. Bye. Bye. All right. And that was my conversation with Ming Fox Weldon. I want to thank Ming for coming on the show. I really appreciate her taking the time out of her very busy schedule to uh, check out the show, come on the show, and share her story. I appreciate that. Uh, again, go check out Doctor Strange if you have the chance. If you. I, I welcome your own opinion I do, I do, I, and I appreciate that If you have anything to say about that As a, as an Asian, as an immigrant As an American in general About the representation of Asians in the media Please, send me an email I want to hear from you, the listeners At therambleradhg at gmail.com You can always like and comment On my Facebook page uh, Facebook.com slash Or tweet me, you can tweet me You can follow me on Twitter I'm the ADHD on Twitter Find me, DM me, check it out there. Also, if you want to come on the show, you can find me on any of those platforms, and we can have a little chat, okay? If you want to come on the show, please let me know, and we can organize that. I would really appreciate that. Uh, What are the other things I want to talk about other than that? Oh, 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 I almost forgot. I went to a great panel this past week with past guest, hosted by past guest Julie Young, Julie Young is a fantastic individual, and she has started this nonprofit organization called Dream Maker, Dream Doer, Dream Supporter, or 3D. And she hosted a panel, her kickoff event of, of of the organization, with uh, a panel of Asian American women in the media. It was fantastic, and I would love to hear their take, actually. I'm going to try to get them on the show, some of them, uh, for their take on some of these issues that we're talking about, like Doctor Strange, like Marco Polo. Um, Some of them were uh, the, the director of the Asian American International Film Festival. I'd love to get her on the show or her take on all these kind of issues. One of them was on an episode of Netflix's Master of None, which you may have heard about a little bit. Uh, If you haven't, we have a short conversation about that in a past episode with Skylar Swenson, which I highly recommend. Uh, Skylar, what's up? Hope you're doing well. Um, And also, we have a future, uh, well, she had on the panel a person who is doing a future Netflix series series. That also features a storyline with a Chinese adoptee, and the person she cast in that role is a Korean adoptee. So I'd like to talk with her. Her name is Diana Son, and uh, she's a Korean-American. And I'd like to get her on the show to talk about that as well, as well as the Korean adoptee who's going to be playing a Chinese adoptee on the show. I think that'd be really great. And if you'd like to hear that, you can lay some pressure on them as well. They're also on Twitter and Facebook. Check them out. And congratulations to Julie. I, uh, support 3D if you can. Like their Facebook page. Check out their events if you're in the New York area. I think they're going to be doing something on a monthly basis. They're fantastic. And I, I applaud Julie on all the efforts and stuff that's happening over there. Oh, I don't want to forget. Speaking of Julie Young, we are doing... She is moderating a panel. And by panel, I mean she's moderating an event uh, with me, Mike McDonald, the Rambler, at All Altogether Now. That is at AltogetherAdoption.org. If you want more information about that, you do have to be a paying member of Altogether Now. You can register on their website, and this panel is for parents of adoptees. So if you're a parent of an adoptee in the New York City area, uh, register for Altogether Now. Check out their parent group. I will be doing that on November 13th that is going to be at 2 p.m. at the Union Temple Preschool in Brooklyn. You can look for directions, everything. It's on my Facebook page. Go check it out. If you want more information, again, you have to be a paid member of ATN. Go check them out at their website. Register. And please come to that event November 13th. I really appreciate that. And I know Julie appreciates it as well. If you want to hear more about Julie, who's another past guest on the show, She is the host, not only of 3D, but she is the host of Korean American Stories, Not Your Average. I highly encourage you all to go out and check that out. Uh, With that, I will say, good luck out there. (laughs) I know it's the eve of the 2016 election. I I don't know about you, but I cannot wait for it to be over. Regardless of who uh, you support out there and what your political views are, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, but I will tell you to please, please go out and vote. Uh, and, and do your part and do your civic duty. If you don't know who to vote for, uh, I don't know what to say to you, but try to get educated on the issues out there and find out. Well, that's That goes for everybody. Get educated on the issues and find out which candidate, uh, presidential, congressional, whatever your local government is out there that represents your views as closely as possible. And if they're already in office, if they're kind of an incumbent in your area, then check out their voting record and see if they've actually kept their promises. And also uh, find out who their campaigns are funded by. Maybe that'll inform what kind of views they will be prone to take. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I'm saying out there? Just check it out. I really uh, think you should go out there and do it. It's your civic duty to get educated on these issues and uh, kind of decide uh, which direction this country should go in and by this country, of course, I mean the United States. I know there's a lot going on in Korea right now with regards to politics and the, and the president over there, park and he, but you know, uh, we're talking about the American politics. Anyways, anyways, I appreciate you guys listening to my show. If you like it, share it, rate it on iTunes, give it five stars. I really like it, uh, review it and share it with your friends and family. If you think that they will enjoy it as well. I appreciate you guys listening to my show a lot. Uh, We're going to close out this episode um, with a tune from another movie I saw this past week, which was Swiss Army Man. And I highly recommend if you're a guy, uh, specifically a guy, I don't think girls would be into it just because my wife wasn't into it. That's all I'm going to say about that. But I like Swiss Army Man. I think it's a beautiful movie about friendship, about being weird, about being who you are, regardless of what other people think. Uh, Even when you think all hope is lost and if you like those kinds of themes and messages, please check out Swiss Army Man. It's a beautiful movie starring Paul Dano, 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 and uh, Daniel Radcliffe. Uh, It's a weird movie. I will say that it's very strange. And if you are on board in the first five minutes, 10 minutes with how weird it is, you'll be on board for the rest of the movie. 100% guarantee. If you don't like it, uh, I'm not going to give you any money back, but It's a good movie. I liked it overall. Actually, I love it. It might be one of my favorite movies of this past year. So give it a chance. Check it out. Uh, I'm going to give you a little taste of the soundtrack, which is also uh, kind of a cappella by Paul Dano and Daniel Radcliffe uh, towards the end of this podcast. And uh, enjoy. Enjoy your week. All right? Enjoy. I will talk to you guys next week. Adios.